You're listening to the Winter Hughes Podcast with Joe and Eric Hughes. And now, here's the Hughes Brothers. Welcome into the Winter Hughes Podcast. It's a Bay Area sports podcast hosted by myself, Joe Hughes, alongside my co-host and brother, Eric Hughes. And Rick, a lot of good stuff to get into for the A's. We've got the trade deadline coming up this week. That'll be on Tuesday. And you know, the A's have actually been playing a lot better. We've been joking about it a little bit that they are losing better. They are 5-5 five and five over their last 10 games, entering the game on Sunday against the Rockies. And some positive things. Zach Geloff has looked very good in his first couple weeks as a big leaguer. Jordan Diaz looks like he's really coming around as a guy that can hit. And, you know, we're going to talk about some of these things about what's going to happen for the A's after the trade deadline. Who do you want to see playing more often? Where do you want to see them playing? And we're also going to talk about some of the veterans who may be playing their final games for the A's over the last few days. Let's start with the good. Let's start with Zach Geloff, who's been a guy that was one of the A's top prospects. We've been really high on him for a little while, and we've gotten a chance to see him play. As we tape this podcast, the A's have played 106 games, Rick. Zach Geloff has been a part of 13 of those games, but going by war, wins above replacement... He has already been the sixth most valuable position player that the A's have had this season, and that is in that small sample size of what he has done, just kind of showing you how well he has taken to the big leagues. A's communication department, they brought out this stat, and this is kind of where you got to put the filters on as you're searching baseball reference. You can kind of find a way to make anything sound good. It's a small sample size, but pretty cool stat. Since Zach Galoff made his MLB debut on July 14th, only three players in the league have at least three home runs, five steals, and a 540 slugging percentage. So again, small sample size. There's going to be adjustments. You know, the teams will make adjustments to how they're pitching him. He'll have to adjust back and forth. That's kind of part of the process. But early impressions for you on watching Zach Eloff kind of just take like a, a duck to water as, as far as being a big leaguer. I think he's been a big change of uh, turning it from losing better to actually even winning games, as we just saw with that Colorado series there. And he really has taken to the big leagues like a trout to water. And uh, I did pick a trout to water over a fish to water because, uh, you know, he's got that exciting potential. You just wonder as a fan when you watch those young guys that turn into those just incredible players. It's difficult. Only one team is going to win the World Series every year, right? But there's so many players you're just hoping that eventually you guys get what could be a generational talent. And I don't want to build them up too much, right? Like you said, it's a small sample size. We know Brent Rooker came up and just was like smashing them and then he cooled off a little bit. So it, it is a streaky game, but he has definitely lived up to the height and he's just constantly delivering, making plays on the bases, making plays with the bat. It's just really fun to go out there and watch him play. Yeah, I think of the A's top position player prospects that we've seen come up. This has been, you know, what you want, right? You want that young guy that's touted to come up and add that excitement level and generate some positivity for the team. He's looked really smooth at second base. You know, he's had some hiccups, but he's also just made the basic plays. And that's what you want. He and Nick Allen have been a really solid double play combo. And they've made that play look so much easier, which is what you want at the big league level. You want that to look fast. When the A's have been turning double plays earlier this season, you know, it's been a mixture of guys who's playing short, who's playing second base. That has not been a smooth thing for the A's this season. With Zach Geloff, especially when he's partnered with Nick Allen, somebody he's played with in the minor leagues before, that has been a smooth operation. 
he's a lot of fun, man. He's he comes in. He's got a lot of confidence. You know, I know it's kind of a a thin line sometimes for people between like brashness and confidence. And I think that he's on the confident side that he believes he belongs here. And that is really translated well as far as his adjustment to the big league level. And we've seen the A's, you know, you kind of start guys in the bottom of the lineup, give them a chance to get their feet wet. He's been hitting leadoff. He's been hitting second. He's been right in the heart of this. And what's going to be really fun is maybe when the A's get Ryan Noda back, when they can get uh, Estuary Ruiz, who's out on a rehab assignment in Vegas right now, but should be back soon. And you can really start seeing that block of talented rookies together with Zach Eloff joining those other A's rookies that have been exciting, like Ruiz, like Ryan Noda, when those guys can get back and watch that all come together to, you know, like you said, you want to see the A's with these young guys turn that losing better into winning or just kind of being more consistent towards 500, which they have been inching closer towards with this infusion of young talent. And, you know, the flip side of that was Zach Geloff, as well as he has played the East top prospect, Tyler Soderstrom. It's been a little bit of a rougher transition for him. And I want to get your perspective on this because we did talk about it a little while ago about a concern when you call up some of these guys and maybe they get a little overwhelmed at first. And Soderstrom, his transition has been a little rough. You know, in 11 games so far, he's hitting just 200. He has an OPS of 500. And that's a number you want to see in that 700 and up range. And that's on base and slugging percentage. A big part of the reason it's so low, in 11 games, a guy that is well regarded for his power does not have an extra base hit. We've yet to see Tyler Soderstrom make that transition as smoothly as Zach Geloff has. With what you've watched from him, are you watching a guy that looks like, you know, maybe he's still trying to figure it out or he's thinking a little bit and it could just come around one hit is all he needs? Or are you seeing somebody that, from your eyes, looks a little overmatched? I do think there is a difference with Geloff. You do have a clearer path to seeing like, hey, this is your position and and you can go and earn this, right? Where with Soderstrom, there isn't that clear path. There is a little bit more traffic there. You do wonder about his mentality and what's he doing out there. Is he going out there and trying too hard to prove that he should have that spot? Because we know the path is kind of blocked to get there, where Skeloff is kind of like, hey, this is yours. Take your shot. Soderstrom is getting more moments. You kind of got to make those moments count, right? Like he is getting starts. But he is getting spots where he's coming in in the seventh inning and putting on the gear, you know. So, you know, we talked about Geloff and, and you know, some people say maybe he's cocky or something like that. You have to have that confidence to perform at this level, right? And when you watch Geloff in, in that first game where or, or that game where he hit his first home run, right, he did have some mistakes. But you have to have that confidence that you're going to come up and you're going to shake it off and you're going to flush those, right? You do see the guys that make a mistake and then they look at their gloves. And yeah, every now and then a lace pops, but your glove is fine, you know? Or the guy that goes and he like looks at his feet or he looks at the dirt. You're not playing at the Martina Sturgeon's field. The dirt is fine, you know? So I like to see the guys that can just like, hey, I missed it, shake it off. I'm going to go get that next one, right? And it's a little easier to do when you know you are going to get that next opportunity. When you're Soderstrom and you're like, oh man, I missed that one. And now I'm going over here and I'm playing a different position and now it's coming at me different. Oh, now I missed that one too. 
And then you wonder what it does for him mentally. So I don't know either of these guys personally. I haven't seen enough of them, you know, outside of baseball or their interviews to to kind of get a good picture of that. But it is a game that just has such a big mental aspect of it. Bring up a good point because Geloff has played every day at second base. You can get comfortable knowing, like you said, you're going to get those opportunities for Soderstrom. He's seen playing time at first base. He's seen playing time behind the plate, mostly behind the plate and DH. He's just played two games at first base, including one that was a rough day for the A's. And he was part of that. There was four errors in that game. I think you're right, man. I think that's the human element of this. It's it's, it's hard to make that transition, especially catching is the most mentally taxing position that you have out there. You have to think through, you know, your pitch sequences. You've got a lot. You've got to control the running game. And you've got to figure out how to hit. So I think that's part of the reason the A's have been trying to give him at least a little bit of a mental break when he's a designated hitter. But that has its own challenges because you got to find a way to stay engaged in the game when you're not going out there and getting those reps in the field. And so I I definitely think that that's part of it. Watching this, it's a very difficult tightrope for the A's because you want to make sure, like you said, that he feels comfortable that he's going to be in the lineup tomorrow, that he's going to get an opportunity to keep going out there despite mistakes or despite a lot of strikeouts. But you also don't want him to lose that confidence. You don't want him to feel overwhelmed and overmatched. And if he does wind up being one of these guys, like a Matt Chapman was, even a Matt Olson that came up, was sent back down to work on some things, that he has a clear understanding of what he's going to be working on and what adjustments he needs to make when he goes back or if he goes back I do wonder how long you want to let him keep running out there before you try to say, okay, you know what? Forget everything else. You're going to be our first baseman until Ryan Noda gets back. You're going to be our DH every day and get your bats that way. Or if you send him back down with an idea like, hey, we want you to start working on, you know, maybe more of this kind of swing, or we want you to be more selective on these kind of pitches. Because right now, maybe the alarming part is the strikeouts. He's striking out a lot for a guy that's only played a few amount of games. And I think that that's going to be one of the key numbers that the A's are watching for, one of those metrics that they want to keep an eye on to see if this guy is maybe getting a little overwhelmed right now, or if he just needs to keep going out there and suddenly those hard-hit singles are going to turn into hard-hit doubles. Well, the A's have shown they'll get a little quick trigger to move you around if you're a prospect that has a lot of strikeouts. There is a mental part to this game. There is a consistency, and it does seem like some of that is coming into play with him, right? Just not having that consistency of positions, not seeing like the clear path forward, knowing that Noda is young, Langoliers is young. So it's not like, oh, okay, these are veterans and we see you here next year. Mm-hmm. You do wonder about those kind of aspects. There is such a mental aspect. Carol Dweck is this author who wrote this book called Mindset. Essentially, you can look at things two ways, right? And if you get sent down to the minor leagues, this mindset thing would be like, okay, I'm not ready yet. And it's a big like emphasis on yet. And like, okay, I got to go work on my strikeouts. I got to go work on this. But that could be it, right? Like some kind of change that comes later on. Or you have a fixed mindset where you go, I'm not ready. And then you just maybe feel like I had my chance and I just wasn't good enough. It really does come to mindset. I wonder what it does for him to see Geloff doing so well, you know, and and knowing they do have a close relationship. It is a streaky game. It is a mental game. Hopefully they can lean on each other. Hopefully they can push on each other and that he can be a productive member of this team. Something we saw with a veteran 
Uh, well, a little bit of a veteran. He's still a young player. And Brent Rooker, as you mentioned earlier, the way that he kind of leapt onto the scene, he was leading baseball and OPS early on this year through the first month and a half, and then really struggled. And we saw kind of a human element come out when he was voted into the All-Star game. And he talked about, you know, he didn't label it imposter syndrome, but he did start talking about having that belief that you belong, that you're actually here and that it's not just going to go away and that you can believe in that. And we were talking about maybe how that belief would help him transition after the All-Star break. And we've seen a lot better Brent Rooker since that game. Like coming into this week in the last, you know, three games, he's five for 10. You know, he's hitting home runs again, including a big blast on Saturday. And he's looking, he's looking like a guy who believes he belongs and he's being productive and looks confident again when he's up there. Like he has a plan. I, I think that that's part of that human element that, you know, Tyler Soderstrom is going to have to figure that out. And as long as you're seeing kind of that kind of positive momentum, I think there's an, an area for Tyler Soderstrom to start feeling like, yeah, I can feel comfortable with this. And I think it does help a little bit, probably more than hurts to see somebody like Zach Geloff succeed because they do have that close relationship. So they can have that communication. They might know, hey, you know what? He needs mm-hmm. to be left alone right now, or he needs a guy with a hand over his shoulder. He needs somebody that can be like, hey, I know who mm-hmm. you are. I've seen what you can do you're doing that. And so I think that that does help. You're not there by yourself in this clubhouse full of veterans trying to feel like, do I belong Mm -hmm. here? And there there is a buddy there. There's somebody you can talk to that understands your specific job problems and not just kind of generally trying to take from their own experience. The other big news for the A's, the trade deadline coming up. And we talked a lot about this last week. The A's have made one move so far, a little surprising. It's been Shintaro Fujinami, There are a lot of teams. I count right now about 18 teams that are probably buyers or consider themselves buyers because those are teams that are all within at least a handful of games of a wild card spot or a playoff spot. Some surprising teams like the Angels playing better. They made a move to try to get into the wild card spot, but there's context for that. They want to try to keep Shohei Otani long term, and they're trying to make that push to make that happen. So we've got about 18 teams. The A's do not have a big trade ship. There's no Max Scherzer that the A's are going to offer this year. So I want to go through some of the names that are out there. I think the most likely, in my opinion, to still be moved, Trevor May and Tony Kemp. And that's because they're both playing very well right now after those early season struggles, but also free agents after this season. So the A's don't have club control over either one of those players. And I think there's a little bit more urgency to try and get some return back, especially for Trevor May because that also gives the A's some salary relief for the A's. Anybody that's making over a million dollars is somebody that they'd like to see moved if they're not competitive. And then I want to get into some of these other guys that there's less urgency for. These are some solid veteran guys, and I want to see who do you think is most likely to be moved. You've got Paul Blackburn, Seth Brown, Ramon Laureano, and a couple of relievers in Sam Mole and Austin Pruitt, because you know teams are always looking for a way to strengthen their bullpens. Of those guys, would you be surprised to see the A's move on from Blackburn, Seth Brown, Ramon Laureano, guys that the A's still have some club control over and obviously have established themselves as veteran big leaguers in the case of Paul Blackburn. He's been an all-star and Ramon Laureano, when he's been healthy, which has been harder to come by as of late, we've seen him be that kind of five-tool player that can really drive a lineup. And, you know, maybe that's a wild card team for a team looking to get into the wild card is you've got a player that can be a real difference maker when he's on. So if the A's moved any of those players, would it surprise you at all? Or do you view it maybe that these are guys that have helped the A's in the past, but 
right now the A's are making that transition and these guys probably aren't part of that long-term rebuild. Yeah, I don't think I would be too surprised if any of them were moved. I know last week we kind of talked about some of those guys that we didn't talk about Ramon Laureano. Last week with Seth Brown, though, we were talking about, you know, maybe him getting traded. But then I also asked, like, do you see him as in their plans for that future, knowing that you do have control? I think my question more is, if you're the A's, are you trying to sell him or trade him? Or are other teams trying to buy him because they want him? So what do you see Seth Brown as? As something you're trying to move or something other teams are trying to acquire? I think there's less urgency from the A's to move those guys. They're all cheap. They have club control. And I think the other aspect of this, and it ties into a little bit with what we talked about with Tyler Soderstrom and Zach Geloff, the A's do see value in having veterans around when they've got a young team. And we saw that even last year as like they prioritized keeping a guy like Steven Vogt. They really valued having his veteran presence in the locker room. Jed Lowry was another guy like that, that the A's valued having around for that role. And they were hoping that, you know, Trevor May was going to be one of those guys. They wanted to have Paul Blackburn around earlier this season to help some of those young A's pitchers out. So if you're the A's, I, I do think that they see Seth Brown as like, if we get an offer or maybe... Like we talked about last week, if you know somebody wants to take Seth Brown as part of a package deal and we get a stronger prospect in return, I think they'd listen. But I don't think that they're actively out there trying to make a move. And I think if they were going to try to actively move somebody, it would be somebody like Trevor May because he does have that higher salary and is a free agent after this year. He's also pitching well. So I'd like to think that overall, there is some value to that. So where do you weigh some of that? For those guys, like you've been on teams before as a young guy and you've, you know, had those guys that were established on those teams before. Is it helpful for you when you're trying to figure things out to have some of those people around? Because it means that there's less that's being relied on for you. To me personally, it depends on like where the team is, right? Like weighing um, down. (laughs) Kind of where you are is like, yeah, you are building for the future. You want to get these younger guys in there, but you want those veterans there that know the culture, right? And can still establish the culture and the routine, right? Because You know, a lot of people talk about like Jamarcus Russell and like what happened with him. And then you go, imagine if you were a teenager and you got that much money, you get this house and all this other stuff, right? Like, are you going to say you're going to keep your life all the way in control? Like, it's easy to say that because you don't have that. I've heard people talking about like people that play hockey and they come through playing juniors together and they're like 28, 30 year old men. And you would think they're like 15, you know, you do want people that know the culture of being a pro being a professional going through the grind and not like hey we're in new york time to go live it up you want the guys that can teach you how to do that and still go out there and and produce and and get through the grind as well like right like hey keep your head down stay in your hotel room and go play that's not gonna be any fun either right you're a human being you gotta live your life but knowing where the limits are i know what kind of trouble i got in as a kid like in college age and i wasn't making them well i'll tell you what to your point so and to your point i was just remembering that there was a time when now A's manager Mark Kotze was one of those veterans along with uh, Jason Kendall when they were on that team. And they had a rowdy, rambunctious group of youngsters like Nick Swisher and Joe Blanton where, you know, kings of the Walnut mm-hmm. Creek party scene where it was common to see them out there. You know, I ran into them a couple times drinking at bars and things like that. 
And I remember there were a couple times during big games that you would see those guys going out with them in order to kind of be like, okay, time to go home. You know, we're not closing down Krogan's tonight. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. we're going to go out there and you'd see Mark Kotze or like mm-hmm. Jason Kindle go out there to try to get Joe Blanton and Nick Swisher back on the field. I, I remember Adam Kennedy doing that uh, one time with, uh, I think it was Derek Barton and going out with them. And that's part of that veteran young guy experience where you, it's like, okay, there's a way to have a good time, but we have a game tomorrow and we need to win. I used to work with, you know, FP Santangelo and he was telling me stories about those early 2000s teams, about the things that they would do going out, but they were so talented that they could go out, have those crazy nights and then still come back and, you know, beat the Angels 11 to 9 the next day or something like that because they had that much talent. But obviously this A's team, not yet at that level of talent. They're open to get there. But that's, I think, part of the transition that you want to see, like you mentioned, for some of those veterans where they can really help you learn what it's like to be a big leap and find that, you know, that work-life balance that we all try to find in our lives. <laughs> there is some value to that. But does it become a redundancy sometimes with some of these guys? Do you think with maybe like, hey, Tony Kemp, we really value him. He's going to be a free agent after this year. So is it more valuable to have Tony Kemp or Seth Brown, two guys that are well-respected and established veterans, stay? Or does it become like, you know what, we have Seth Brown so we can move Tony Kemp. We have Tony Kemp so we can move Seth Brown. Like, Do they become more expendable because you have some redundancy? Or does that work the other way around where you want to keep them around so that you have more voices in that clubhouse setting that culture? Personally, as a fan, I feel like the redundancies aren't necessarily Tony Kemp. I ju- I think there's other veterans. You want your soapbox? This let Miss Diaz and Jace Peterson. <laughs> I I I like them as human beings. <laughs> <laughs> Those are where I think the redundancies are. Even Nick Allen over at shortstop, when you walk up to him and you look at his his defense, like that's a nice glove there. And then you look at his batting average, and it's not very good. But when he's coming up, he's putting the bat on the ball. He's just hitting it to where somebody is. The other thing he's been doing is he's been getting sacrificed bunts down, which has been a big problem for the A's, but they sacrifice a lot on this team. And that's something he's been very good at in helping those out. So you're right. The batting average is low, but he's at least, or at least the A's, they like his glove. They know that that has value, but they'd like to see him put down those bunts and move a guy over rather than give himself up. And that helps the team a little bit more. I'm saying I don't want his at-bats to be taken away. I mean, when you look at the numbers, they speak for themselves. So at some point you go, okay, this just isn't good enough. But how do you fix that? When you're just hitting the ball, you're making contact. It's not like you're getting blown away by these pitches. It's not like you're not reading it and you're like, oh man, that just went off the end of the bat. You're making good contact, but it's going right to the right fielder. He has not even had to make a step. You know, like it is directly right there. So like, do you have to do something to pull it more? Do you have to make an adjustment to find the gap? But like you're putting the bat on the ball, but it's not going in play. That's part of the reason I want to see Nick Allen out there. And one of the adjustments for Nick Allen has been his plate discipline. The pitches that he's swinging at are pitches he can try and hit and handle. And he's also letting those other pitches go by because I think that's something that you want to watch is is this guy swinging at pitches that he has no chance of making contact with, let alone doing anything with if he did make contact? And we've seen Nick Allen be a little bit more discerning as of late, which is optimism for more production down the line. Now, 
His bat was always the question. You know, coming up, his defense has been major league ready for years. And I think there is some value with this A's team, especially with young pitching in there, to have some solid, reliable defense that can make outs above average. And Nick Allen has done that. We saw that in the game on Saturday. He had a play that I said was so smooth, you'd think it was hitting on you. And he made it look so easy, but it was a really tough play. And we talked earlier about the double play combination of Nick Allen and Zach Geloff. Is he going to be the A's long-term guy at shortstop? Well, he's going to get a chance, I think, to show that he can take that mantle. And that's what the A's want is like, hey, if we give you an opportunity, take it. Ryan Noda took the first base job, got an opportunity. The A's said, thank you, Jesus Aguilar. Ryan Noda is going to be our guy. And that's made things tougher for the A's in their decision making about where Tyler Soderstrom is going to play. But that's not, you know, Ryan Noda's problem. That's not Soderstrom's problem. That's the good kind of problem that the A's like to have. They want to see him do that with Shea Langoliers, who is getting the opportunity right now and has done some great things, but has not really taken that catcher job that he is going to be the A's long-term catcher for you know the next five to ten years. So I think that that's what I look around as I say, who's taking that job? And the A's do have you know some prospects coming up that play shortstop that you know maybe they're holding that onto. They haven't solidified second base all the way yet. Zach Eloff is trying to do that right now. They haven't solidified shortstop yet. Definitely haven't solidified third base yet. The left side of that infield is wide open for jobs for people to take those gigs. The outfield, got Estuary Ruiz in center field. You've got veterans around him. Brent Rooker, not a great defender. Maybe he's a long-term DH kind of option. You got Ramon Laureano. You've got Seth Brown, guys that are probably not long-term rebuilds, waiting for guys like Lawrence Butler to come up. So where are those opportunities and who's going to take those roles? Is Nick Allen going to be a guy that becomes eventually kind of a utility guy? Maybe because he does have a skill set that can keep you in the big league and that he's a great defender, which is something that you're going to want regularly. Maybe a late game replacement or a guy that plays in those day games after night games. And he can also get the sack bunt down and play that situational baseball that can really have value to a winning team long term. You don't have to sell me on Nick Allen. I would be, I think he'd be a great utility man, right? Especially like when you need to bring somebody in to play some defense late in a game because it's it's there on the line and Maybe the lineup card is fortunate enough that you're like, oh, he's not going to get in that bat. We really just need him to go in there and do that. I would take his glove over Diaz's glove. I would take uh, Tony Kemp's versatility over Diaz's versatility, right? And to be honest, like, a lead Miss Diaz hasn't shown anything with the bat that makes me go, oh, he is so much better than Nick Allen. I just feel like he's taking at-bats away from Nick Allen who could use those at-bats to work on taking those balls that he's able to drive and making those adjustments so it goes into the gap or that it pulls down to the line and it's not going right to those corner outfielders. Yeah, in theory, some of this opens up after the deadline. Like if the A's are able to move some of the veterans that they have on this team, whether it is an Aletmus Diaz or a Jace Peterson, Ramon Laureano, Seth Brown, Tony Kemp, if those guys are moved, it does open up more opportunities in the lineup, which, you know, Mark Kotze has tried to keep flexible in how he's going to get guys in there. But the first thing I do when I check on A's lineup right now is I glance at who are the young, talented guys that are in there today? Who am I watching for? Is Zach Geloff in there? Is Tyler Soderstrom in there? Is Jordan Diaz in there? Is Nick Allen going to play? How are they going to play those guys? Who's pitching? Is it going to be Luis Medina? You know, Mason Miller throwing a bullpen session. Hopefully he's back soon. So that's what I first look for. And after the deadline, if the A's do free up that opportunity, I want to see Nick Allen 
and Jordan Diaz in there, if not every day, every other day. I want to see them getting that opportunity ahead of those guys because I'm tired of watching the A's be this bad without seeing them move forward and make that progress. You talked about that fixed mindset about being good enough yet. I don't see Letmus Diaz or Peterson being good enough when the A's are going to be good enough yet. And maybe Nick Allen will. I'm more excited to watch the struggles of a Nick Allen or a J.J. Bladea, a guy who's made an adjustment with his hands and is working through learning what it takes to be that kind of consistent major league player. I'm more excited to watch that process than to watch a veteran who the A's paid a little bit of money to to mentor these young guys while those young guys aren't playing. We talk about the 2014 team a lot, and I think a lot of A's fans do, right? Because Usually yeah, with a lot of tears in our eyes. You think back, and the core of that started from a really young 2012 team, right? Really young 2012 team that really surpassed expectations and went on to, you know, make the playoffs and have a really tough battle against the Tigers where they ran into some guy named Justin Verlander. I I, I don't know what happened to him in his career. When you have a young team, and uh, we focus on that 2014 team, right? But like that 2012 team, if they had gotten through that game five against the Tigers, who knows? But we don't really talk about that team because it was so full of rookies and young guys, but they really went on a tear, right? And you, in some ways, you got to give them the keys. And so we've known this is going to be a season where we're not challenging for anything and we're keeping an eye on the future it's hard to keep an eye on the future when you're seeing peterson and diaz get these at bats when you know that they're here for a little bit they're not part of the 2028 plans i wouldn't assume and the way that they're playing i don't think they're doing anything to convince anyone that they should be at some point you want to get back to that 2014 but it takes time right and maybe you give these kids the keys and maybe they're going to do something surprising i'd like to see those young guys play as much as possible over the final month and a half of the season and I did want to get into one thing we did see on Saturday's game, another version of the A's protest. As we saw a couple people with the sell shirts in the fifth inning of that game in Colorado, there were the sell the team chants. You picked it up on the broadcast. I tweeted it out at Vegas Joe Hughes that you could hear people in the stadium doing the sell the team chant. And this A's fan-led protest effort has done a great job of keeping this alive and keeping this going after the reverse boycott because this had a chance to be a really cool moment and they kind of fizzle out, but no, they have kept this alive and kept it going. The latest successful effort we saw in San Francisco, A's and Giants Unite. We saw the fifth inning chance again. The sell the team was loud. You could hear it on the TV and radio broadcast on both the A's and Giants, and something new, the broadcasters actually mentioned it. Dwayne Kuyper mentioned it. John Miller mentioned it. And on A's radio, we heard Ken Korak mention it. On the A's TV, Johnny D and Dallas stayed silent. They let the moment speak for itself. You could really hear that coming across. They didn't say anything. I think it was Cody Thomas was uh, up for the A's. Once he grounded out, that's the first time that you heard them speak. But they let that whole at-bat play out, just letting that sell the team speak for itself. The latest planned effort is going to be August 5th in Oakland, Giants in town. And the latest controversy, Rick, is that There has been an accusation from fans on Twitter that the A's have jacked up the ticket prices for that game against the Giants because right now the ticket price for the A's and Giants, the get-in ticket, 
$44 to get in before you pay parking, before you pay fees. The next day against the Giants, that same ticket, $27. Scott Osler reached out to the A's. The A's have denied that they jacked it up. They say they don't control the dynamic pricing model. That's an MLB program, and it's just more demand means a higher ticket price, and that that's what's happened and that the A's ticket price has gone up from $27 to $44 because there is more demand for that game. And yeah, that does happen. A's and Giants draw a bigger crowd, but you've got A's and Giants two days in a row. One ticket's 44, one is 27, and the $44 happens to fall on the same day that the A's are doing a fan-led boycott or a protest, and it just happens that it was. So that's led to a lot of questions. Your reaction just hearing those parts of the story. Let's just move the boycott to the next day. <laughs> uh, partly I'm saying that because I already have tickets for the next day. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to miss that one. I think it was great to see that with the Giants. I was trying to get back home. I was driving up from Anaheim, decided to extend the uh, vacay, and so I didn't make it. How cool would it be if this became like an MLB-wide thing where you're watching like, Cardinals Cubs and in the fifth inning everyone goes sell the ace you know that would just be so cool if it just kind of really took over like that I'm glad that it's continued to get momentum you know as we've seen now the A's have said oh yeah our stadium thing like that that wasn't really kind of what was going on so yeah the, the latest renderings by the way we're A's fans we are used to seeing renderings that are useless and garbage and like the story you're talking about the A's made it official what we already knew when they released the latest renderings, when they were in Vegas trying to get that public money, they released these renderings that looked like they were AI generated. Turns out, just like Cisco Field and many, many iterations of renderings before them, they were total garbage. They're not going to have any look at what the ballpark's going to look like until at least November. So, in that sense, I'm just like hopeful that we can keep it going. I'm just biting into the hopium more and more. Are they jacking up the prices? I wouldn't put it past them at all, you know? So, we'll, we'll see. But hopefully, we'll go out and we'll see some good games from the young guys. This has been the Winter Hughes podcast. Thanks for listening. New episodes debut every Monday. You can find us on Twitter at Winter Hughes. You can find me at Vegas Joe Hughes, and we'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening to the Winter Hughes podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe.